Uh, how about uh, last Sunday's message by Pastor Mike and the video testimony by Matt? Uh, was that not incredible? That's why we do what we do. Nothing fires me up like uh, tr lives that are radically transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're in week three of this series, East Coast Revival. Hope you've been enjoying it so far. Revival is a word that God just keeps whispering to me. I just, I, it just keeps, uh, I just keep hearing it in my heart. It's like a drumbeat that I just can't get away from. I just, God just keeps telling me just to not, don't let up on this theme of revival and just keeps telling me to keep my, my foot on the pedal of revival. And so here we are in this series. In the first week of the series, we defined re revival like this. If we have it, here we go. A prolonged season of increased spiritual awakening, repentance, and renewal that overflows with local, regional, and national impact. So that's, there are lots of definitions for revival, but this is the one that we kind of used uh, as the framework for our series. And there's another thing that God has been really uh, clear with me about in terms of revival. And, and, and before we put it up on the screen, I want to warn you. And I want to tell you, like, go ahead and put your seatbelts on now and, and your chin straps and your helmets and face masks and everything else. I want to warn you, okay, this, this is kind of like Buckley's. And, it, and, it, and it's not going to taste real good. Um, but it's helpful. And, and, we, and we need it. And so before we put this up on the screen, I want to tell you that I love you. <laughs> and, I, and I love being your pastor. <laughs> Is anybody watching the hockey playoffs uh, I can't even make fun of the Leafs. Anybody watch? Nobody watch? See, nobody watching Canada trying to change the subject. Okay, we're going to put this up. Are you ready? We're going to put this up on the screen. Did I mention that I love you? Did I mention that? All right. Here we go. Let's put this up on the screen. We won't, ex we won't experience corporate revival until we exercise personal repentance. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the applause. I can continue. That's good. I still have a job. We won't. I'm choking, by the way. I'm not really nervous about saying these things. I'm, I'm joking. But we won't. We will never experience large-scale, church-wide, city-wide, regional, national, whatever you want to call it. We'll never experience corporate revival until we exercise personal repentance. And about 30 minutes from now, I'll give us all an opportunity to decide what we're going to do about this. I was trying to think if I've ever been a part of a revival move of God before. Um, when I was young, I do remember our church having revival meetings. Anybody remember? Revival never broke out, but we had revival meetings every year. And uh, revival meetings, in my mind, would, it, it was uh, a time when you invited friends. You tried to invite your friends to church. I remember that. Um, the services were really long, or they seemed like they were, and I remember that. But I don't, I don't remember, you know, anything like, like that, that I would really call revival, like an unusual outpouring of the, the presence of God. When I went to pastor our church in Marysville, Fredericton, that's where I was before I came here. I pastored there for five years. And when I went to Fredericton, I knew that that church in Marysville had experienced, there was a time in their history when they had truly experienced a, a, a revival. 
And so the, when I started at that church in the first few weeks, I got uh, one of the senior men of the church, and I said, take me around to, to people who were a part of that. And I, and I want to hear their stories. I want to hear all about it. I want them to, to, to tell me what it was like, what they experienced. And so we did that. We went to dozens of, of, of homes. All summer long, we just visited, visited homes and listened to their stories. And people said things like, if you didn't go to church an hour early, forget it. You were not getting inside the building. Like, if you didn't go at least an hour early, you were not getting a seat. Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? And all the believers went really early to get bad parking spots, to park as far away as they possibly could, right? I love it. Um, and, and they said they had to open the windows of the church. We, we can't really do that, but we can open the back doors. They said they opened the windows of the church, and, and people set chairs around the outside of the windows, and they, they stood and they crammed around every, every window of the church. There were people who were just trying to, to be a part of what was going on on the, on the inside. And they said that uh, people were coming to the altar before the pastor st started preaching. Before he started. So that's too late. Um, but you might, maybe this morning someone might come before I finish preaching. And they said people were just, they, were, they just, they couldn't wait. They just had to go uh, to the front of the church, to the altar area of the church. And sometimes during the worship, during the singing, people would just come down to the, to the altar of the church, uh, coming for salvation, coming for healing, coming for restoration, for baptism. And, and people were telling me over and over again, they said, well, we didn't go to church. Like, we were far from God. We had no interest in church. And when our friend invited us, we just felt drawn. Like, we just felt compelled. Like, it, it was like... It was like, Pastor Tim, like we couldn't not go. There was just, we just, we just, we just felt like we had to go, and that's where we uh, met Jesus. That's where we gave our lives to Christ. So I've been in some great services over the years, and I've seen God do some incredible things. One of the greatest, really, uh, in my 46 years to date, one of the greatest was the day that we baptized 101 people out here in our parking lot. That was quite a, that was quite a day. That was, that, was pretty, that was pretty cool, and I'd love to see that again. But I don't know that I've ever been a part of uh, what we would call revival. Uh, one more part of this, and then we'll get into our text this morning. I just want to say again, uh, just to be, so I can be super clear and, and careful about this, that this is not about church growth. And, and I really want you to hear that, okay? And I think that, I, I do believe that God will fill this church many times over. I, I do believe that that will happen. Um, and I do believe that, that God wants to, to start a fire across Atlantic Canada and uh, that, that blazes across the country. Uh, and if he does, and if God, that's what God wants to do, then I say, come, come, Lord Jesus, come. The prophet Isaiah, as you've heard this morning, he, he prayed for this. He cried out for God to come, for God to do uh, what he had done before, for God to come back and restore them. And then... Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing the first letter of Corinthians, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul picks up on Isaiah's cry. He, he, he picks out a verse from this text that we're going to read in Isaiah chapter 64. So we're going to start in Isaiah 64, and then we're going to look at what Paul had to say about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's, you've already heard this text, but here we go. We're going to read it again, Isaiah 64, where he says, Oh, that you would burst from the heavens 
and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. Your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. It's not about us. It's about God's fame. When you came down long ago, Isaiah remembers, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways. But you've been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you've turned away from us and turned us over to our sins and yet, O oh Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all formed by your hand. Don't be so angry with us, Lord, please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. Your holy cities are destroyed, Zion is a wilderness, yes, Jerusalem is a desolate ruin, the holy and beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned down, and all the things of beauty are destroyed. And after all this, Lord, must you still refuse to help us? Will you continue to be silent and punish us? Isaiah is begging God to do something radical. He wants God to, to, to shake things up. And there's nothing uh, polite or reserved or, or quiet or, you know, politely Canadian about this, right? And he's not just being visually artistic with his words. He literally wants God to part open the heavens and, and, and come down and shake the earth with his very presence. He wants God to, to literally come like an irresistible fire to, to burn away all the, all the garbage and all the, the stuff that needs to be consumed by the presence of God. He literally wants the presence of God to bring things to a boil. You know, he wants the, the temperature in the room to be raised by the power and the presence of God. And so God, he says in, in verse 2, he says, God, would you come in such a way that those who don't know you, that, that, that it's it just, it, it cannot be explained any other way. Would you come in such a way that those who don't know you would, would see you? They would, they would see your fame. They would understand, God, how how great and how awesome you are. That's our prayer. Lord, would you come in such a way that, that none of us in this room can explain it. And all we would be able to do is just say, it's, it's God. It's not us. It's God. And that people all around, wherever, you know, as far as we can reach, the people everywhere would, would, would look at, at the presence of God and they would, they would see his fame. Isaiah remembered that God appeared as a fire to Moses when he called Moses to lead God's people out of bondage. The bush wasn't consumed, but Moses was. God burned away his fear. God burned away Moses' stubbornness and his lack of faith. Isaiah remembered how God led his people, led his children um, 
through the night as a fire, how God was going before them, preparing the way. Uh, it's, it's a reminder to us that if you keep your eyes on the fire of God, you will not stumble. Isaiah remembered that when God uh, fell on Mount Sinai to lead the people with his commandments, that, that, that God descended on Mount Sinai like a fire, and the whole mountain shook with his presence. And there was a direct connection there between the presence of God and the fire of God, and obeying God, following God in obedience, those things leading us to freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom in the fire of God. There is healing in the fire of God. The fire of his presence, is, it's where our sins are consumed. It's where our, our lives, our very beings are, are purified the refined in the fire of God. And Isaiah is asking God to do what only God can do. Isaiah recognizes that what he needs and what his country needs is a genuine move of God. Policy can't fix this. Good ideas can't solve this. Trying harder is not the answer. We need a move of God. Isaiah says, Lord, come with your mighty power. Do something unmistakable. Do something that will, that will drive out disbelief, unbelief. If you were here last Sunday and you watched Matt's testimony of all that God has rescued him from and done in his life, let me ask you, did that not drive doubt out of your heart? Didn't it? Didn't it just like... Like your faith level, just like whoop, you know, just like totally refilled. Like if God can do that in, in, in Matt, God can do anything. There is nothing beyond his, beyond his, his reach of what he can do. It, it filled me with the renewed faith that in God all things are possible. So in verse 4, Isaiah 64, verse 4, he says, For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. And he's getting ready to talk about, Isaiah, he's really setting us up, because he's, he's getting ready to talk about sin and, and repentance. But before he gets there, he gives us the good news first, and he wants us to remember. We need to remember this morning that God is a good God. God is for you. He's not against you. And Isaiah uses the, the phrase, he says, from the very beginning. In other words, let me invite you to look back as far as you can look back. Let me invite you to, to read everything that has ever been written about our God. And you will see that God can be trusted. You'll see that God never changes. His character is always the same. Isaiah says, go back to the very beginning as far as you want to go. And you'll see that God is good. And then at the end of verse 4, he says uh, this, he says, um, who works for those, God works for those, he works for those who wait for him. While we are waiting, God is working. While we are waiting, God is working. While you wait for God, God works for you. He's, he's there, he's active in your life, even when you don't see it. He's not absent. He's not 
unplugged or disconnected. This, this is good news this morning, that while you're waiting, God is working. He's working right now in our lives. Maybe you've been wondering, well, well where is God? You know, maybe, maybe it's just seemed like, like it's, it's just unreachable and, and, and you haven't felt the presence of God. What is he up to? Maybe he's just not as, as close or near or, or evident in your life as you would like for God to be. And the promise here from Isaiah 64 is that he works for us while we wait for him. Maybe you've been praying a prayer that just for years, over and over and over, and you think, okay, Lord, now would be a good time. And you're wondering, where is he? He's working. He's working while you are waiting. He's working. And I believe this to be true for our church and I believe in this season that while we're, we're praying for revival, and I, I believe that while we pray and while we worship and while we wait on the Lord, he is working. He is doing things right now that we cannot always see, but, that, but he is working for us. And between verse 4 and verse 5, this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mega shift here in the text, between 4 and 5. And this is what Isaiah does. He reminds us that, that God is good, God is holy, God is awesome, and we are sinners. And that, that's, that's, that's the shift right there between verse 4 and verse 5. God has always been good, and people have always been jacked up, messed up, broken. And, he, and Isaiah doesn't hold back here, and he doesn't, he doesn't try to put lipstick on our sin, you know? Um, Am I the only one guilty of always trying to downplay my sin? Am I the only one who does that? Do you do that? Do you ever do that? Isaiah wants us to see our sin for what it is. It's the problem, gang. Sin is the problem. It separates us from a holy God. It's complete disobedience to the will of God. Sin is turning my back on God. It's, it's choosing my way over God's way. And his tone, Isaiah's tone, clearly changes in verse 5. And he says, Lord, you could do good. You have done good. You welcome those who do good, who follow your ways. But he says, we're not good. We, we, are, we are just not good. We are, we are not godly. And Isaiah hangs out the dirty laundry of his entire nation. And he says that they are constant sinners. He doesn't hold back. He says that they're infected and, and they're impure with their sin. And he says, even, even when you think you've done something, something good, even when you think you're, you're being righteous, he says, your, your sin is so much greater that your righteousness is like filthy rags. Well, tell us how you really feel. And Isaiah is, 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 is pleading. I mean, he's praying, he's begging for personal repentance that will result in corporate revival. He's calling on God to come down, and he's asking the people to come clean. And there is a connection, gang, between our humility and our surrender and our confession and the outpouring of God. They're directly related. When the people of God come clean, the power of God will come down. You can have repentance without revival, but you cannot have revival without repentance. It'll never happen. I'll back that up and say it again. You can have repentance 
without revival. Repentance doesn't always result in revival, but you cannot have. We're kidding ourselves. We will never have revival without repentance. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon had just finished building the temple. In Isaiah chapter 64, we read the temple is in ruins. But in Chronicles 7, Solomon had just finished building the temple of the Lord, and it's a revival atmosphere. And 2 Chronicles 7 says that fire is falling from heaven, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And in fact, that God's presence was so powerful in the temple that the priest didn't even dare walk inside. They couldn't get inside the temple because the glory of the Lord was so rich and thick and, and strong. And, and uh, the scripture tells us that they, the, they danced and they sang and they worshiped and they sacrificed for seven days and people came from everywhere. And when it finally settled down, this is what God said to Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, I'm going to read 13, 14, and 15. Where God said, at times, I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls. I might command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Verse 14. Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will restore their land. Fifteen, my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. This is what Isaiah is praying for. He's praying for the people for the people of God to, to humble themselves, to pray, to seek God's face, to turn from their wicked ways. Verse 14 of, of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, is, it's packed with, prom, with promise that if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, <coughs> excuse me, if we will seek his face and turn from our sin, God will hear, God will forgive, God will restore us, his eyes will be open, his ears will be attentive. I mean, do you want to get the attention of God? Humble yourself. Do you want God to hear you? Confess your sin. Humbly bow before him, and he will meet you there. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a promise. And it is so counter to our, to our culture, because our culture says, you're okay. Fix yourself. You know, it's so counter to your culture to, to, to humble ourselves before, Lord, before the Lord. What if, what if, just dream with me here for a minute. What if we all get to experience a once in a lifetime, a once in who knows how long move of God. And in that move of God, people start asking us, how did this happen? What did you do? Um, tell, us, tell us how this all began. What, what's the formula? What's the recipe? What did you do? We want to know. How did, you, how did you experience a move of God like that? And our answer was this. We humbled ourselves. 
every single person in the room, every one of us together, we humbled ourselves before God. We fell on our faces. We repented of our sins. We got serious about our sin. We confessed, and God showed up. There's nothing cute. There's nothing creative. Nothing that we can take credit for. Only God. In verse 6, Isaiah says, We're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags like autumn leaves. We wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. And he uses this powerful imagery to show us the effects of our sin. The enemy wants to tell you that sin doesn't matter. The enemy wants to tell you that you're okay, that you're getting away with it, and God, and it's okay. You know, we're all, we all sin, and the enemy's trying to deceive you on that. And Isaiah says, no. He says, look, he says, we're like autumn leaves. We lose our life. We lose our power. We dry up. We're we, we, we drift away from the vine. We're, we're cut off. We're, we, we just, we're blown away by the, by the wind. That's scary. And he says in verse 7 that even though, he says, even though we know this is true, he says, nobody's calling on your name. He says, nobody is, is pleading with you for mercy. And then he uses another image of the, of the potter and the clay to, just to help, help us see it and understand it. One of the deceits of sin is that we're doing okay on our own. You know, you're, you're, in sin, you're moving away from God. You're making your own decisions. And, and the enemy would want to say, oh, you're fine. You're okay. Don't worry about it. We don't see the immediate consequences. And Isaiah wants us to see clearly who we really are. We're clay. We're fragile. Our lives are best formed in the hands of the master. Our lives are best formed in the hands of the master. We're created by God. We're designed by God. And when we resist the potter, capital P, when we, re we resist the potter, we wobble. We get out of line and out of form and we'll never be what we're supposed to be outside of the loving hands of God. Sin tells you that you are indestructible, carbon fiber, bulletproof. Humility tells you that you are clay and you need the touch of God, the hands of God around your life or you will crack and you will crumble. And he ends the chapter with some pretty strong words about where unattended sin leads. He says the holy cities are destroyed. It's wilderness. It's a desolate ruin. The temple is burned down. How many times do we leave an experience like this on a Sunday morning, uh, having done some good and being built up again in God, only to have those things obliterated by the effects of sin in our lives? So the end of Isaiah 64 is not a great place to end. I'm thankful that it doesn't end there. Uh, our story does not end with hopelessness in the desert. Are you thankful for that? Let's turn the corner. <clears throat> That's good news. Let's turn the corner. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This stuff doesn't really hydrate me, but anyhow. Black coffee. I should be drinking water. Here we go. Oh, let me get to the right text. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says this. 
When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters of Moncton Weston, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. <laughs> That's true. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Yet when I'm among more mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak is of the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye is seen. And this is where he quotes Isaiah 64. He says, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, one, I just saw this this morning. I was reading over this text again this morning. And Paul changes the text a little bit. When Isaiah wrote Isaiah 64 verse 4, you remember, Isaiah said, those who wait for him. And I pointed out to you that while we're waiting, God is working. And Paul changes it, and he says, for those who love him. Because on this side of the resurrection, we're not waiting for Jesus. He's here. He's come. I just saw that this morning. So I wrote a whole other sermon, and we'll be here till 3 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Paul says, and I say this morning, I, I just echo it. I'm just echoing the words of Paul. If you only get one thing, if we can just focus on one thing, Paul says, focus on the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, I'm not going to use clever words. I'm not going to use persuasive speech or methods of reasoning. I'm just going to point people to the cross of Jesus Christ. He came to us as God's son. We didn't recognize him or receive him, and we hung him on a sinner's cross. And this is where, on the cross of Jesus, is where God shook the earth that Isaiah was praying for. This is where God broke open the heavens, and we took the dead body of Jesus, and we buried him. And on the third day, God raised his son Jesus and resurrected him as the eternal victorious king. And hundreds of people saw him, and the disciples saw him, and they touched him, and they ate with him, and they wrote about him. And Paul himself had his own radical transforming encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And Paul just points people to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the answer. This is why we still celebrate communion, because we remember if it was not for the cross, we would be stuck back in Isaiah chapter 64 in the desert of our desolation, kicking the rubble because there would be no hope. But there is hope, and we celebrate hope because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Christ. Paul describes this truth as a mystery that not, not everyone has understood it yet. 
It doesn't, the mystery doesn't fully make sense until you believe and, and receive Jesus into your life. And then the Holy Spirit starts to help you to understand these things about, about, about Jesus. From the outside looking in, it's, it's a mystery. But from the inside looking out, we can see that the cross is everything. And Paul points people to Jesus. This church, Moncton Wesleyan Church, exists to point people to Jesus. Praying for revival is so that we can point thousands of people to Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. Anything good that happens in this church, it comes from Jesus. If there's healing in this place, it's Jesus. If there are baptisms in this place, it's Jesus. If there is growth in this place, it's Jesus. If there is revival, it's Jesus. It's all about the sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't want to do cool church Oh, man, I'm way past that. I don't want to do cool church. I don't want to chase trendy church and chase trendy church. I just want people to see Jesus. And Paul says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. He says on this side, gang, on, on this side of the resurrection, he says you can't, you can't imagine how good God is. We can't possibly dream or comprehend the things that, that God has ready for us. Paul is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, for those who love him. Paul, Paul puts the emphasis on that word love. Love is the key word here. Paul wants us to deeply love this glorious Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. Because if you truly love him, it'll change the way you live. It'll change everything if you truly love him. Love for God will inform your decisions. You'll make better decisions if you live out of the love of God, love for God. It will infuse your relationships. It will inhabit your praises. It will affect your affections. If you love God, you will hate sin. If you love God, you will forgive others. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. If you love God, you will serve God. If you love God, you will grow in your faith. You'll become more like Jesus Christ. And Paul takes the cry of Isaiah and he connects it directly to the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Isaiah knew the problem. The problem is sin. Paul knew the answer. The answer is that sin was forever defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you love God enough to be honest about your sin and to come clean before him, that's when God can do for us things that we can't begin to imagine or comprehend. Wow. It's good news. One more verse and then we'll land the plane. The landing gear is out. Verse 10, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. The word deep there means unfathomable. We were praying before church, the band and the media and the sound team and lights and the whole crew of us. We, always, we pray every Sunday morning before church. And I was talking to them about the deep and that how we need to 
invite the Holy Spirit today to take a deep dive to the very deepest, darkest depths of our lives. I don't know if you've seen, um, uh, you know, scientists are, are always creating uh, deep sea cameras that can go a little deeper, a little further. They're, they're, they're seeing parts of the ocean, depths of the ocean that we've never seen before. And when, every time that they, they go to these places, they find the scariest looking things I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Like it's just, you know, something comes in front of the, the, the camera, like, oh, what is that, you know? Everything down there is gruesome. And it's that way in your life, too. There are things at the deep in your life that you've kept in the darkness for such a long time that it's gruesome. And we need to invite the Holy Spirit to go to those places so that nothing is hidden and to surface those things Bring them out into the light of Jesus Christ. Where the power of the cross of Jesus can heal us, can forgive us, can wash us clean. That's what we need today. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. God, we need you. And uh, Lord, you know my prayer this morning was that I would be hidden in this message and that we would only see the cross and the light of your glory. And God, I know your presence is here. And Lord... Would you do for us this morning what only you can do? And God, I pray that you would that you would especially help anyone here this morning who's been who's got stuff that uh, that they've been pushing down and covering up and hiding for years. Would you, would you give them the courage and the strength to deal with that this morning? Because Lord, that's where freedom is. That's where life in Jesus Christ really is. And Lord, I want to pray for, for all of us this morning, every, myself included, all of us this morning, God, that, that this would not be something that, that, that is for a few, but that we would see this as our responsibility, our responsibility to respond to God with open, honest repentance and confession this morning. And then, Lord, whatever you want to do, it'll be good. And we'll say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray and ask these things in your name. Amen.